Welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. And as usual, we have fellow tech editor here, Dave Rome from Sydney, Australia. Our editor-in-chief, Kaylee Fretz in Boulder, back from his vacation in Durango. Pro mechanic, Zach Edwards from the Boulder Group Hedo. How's everyone Hi. doing today? So Hello. good. It's hot. Doing well. Oh, hot. Mm, yeah, I'm, I am currently in Winter Park, Colorado, and it, it, it is absolutely glorious up here. Not very hot. It's blazing sunlight. It's pretty, pretty much fantastic. Just rub it in. Basically, as soon as I am done recording this podcast, I am officially on vacation for two weeks, so I am ready. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, I was looking at your Instagram account the other day. And uh, I think anyone who follows you on Instagram can acknowledge that you have a bit of a um, a problem. I think it's safe to say. And I noticed. I don't. I don't know if it's a problem. I think it's a great thing. Okay, it's a solution. All right. You sound like my bank manager. <laughs> it's it's a, it's on. a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a problem. And I noticed that in your in in your garage, I know that you do not have any plumbing, but you had a desire yes. for a sink to wash your hands. And uh, you went to pretty extraordinary lengths to be able to wash your hands. What is this thing that you put in your garage? I kind of made myself a hybrid of like a caravan pumped sink uh, with like a, a stand and it's got storage. And yeah, it sort of uses like a 12 volt caravan pump to pump water out of one jerry can of water into another. It's a uh, yeah. question. Um, question. I, I need a life question uh are you aware that you can go inside where there are sinks yeah but that was all like you know there's many steps involved and then you have to touch all sorts of like you know door handles and stuff so this way the dirt the rona is contained (laughs) (laughs) all right i see you've been working on a new tool too it looks like oh yeah on instagram um the patent pending that's very my, long. my patient <laughs> pending crank remover for incredibly tight cranks. Yep. <laughs> Describe this to us. It looked qu- like quite advanced to me. It's about a meter. I'd say it's about 1.4 meters long. Uh, it's made of steel. Uh, it's designed to fit over the end of a crank arm. What's that in freedom units? Um, it looks a lot like a steel fence post, but it's it's not. It's my own design. Um, yeah. And, and let's just let's just say it is not an uncommon problem that Dave is dealing with here, and I am already going to go out and obtain a similar piece of steel fence post for the exact same problem here, along with a very substantial breaker bar and the highest quality eight mil socket wrench bit that I can find. Yep, I already have one yes. of these. Mine is circular instead of square tubing, but mm, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's how you do. Right. You had to yeah, get the... around Dave's patent. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah, the the proper way to do it is to use a Fox 40 stanchion tube yeah, right. and pinch the end a little bit, which is like the perfect shape. But uh, I don't have one of those sitting around, so I had to, you know, create my own. James interesting, m- interesting. Meanwhile, is going to have to pay licensing fees when he goes and picks up his fence post. I'm, I'm just going to wait for the cease and desist letter. Hand delivered. Hand delivered. It's not a fence post. It's, it's, it's something else. <laughs> well, anyway... We should probably get on with the show here because I don't think people really want to hear just about Dave's new fence post here. That's all uh, I want to talk we have about, a, personally. Yeah. Well, we do have a little bit of a different show for you today, slightly. So we're going to take a look at some new gravel bikes from Moots and chat about yet more entries into the totally mega-saturated carbon road wheel market in our new segment. But then we're going to do an extended Ask a Mechanic segment because... 
honestly, we've got so many good submissions over the last couple of weeks that we really just didn't want to leave them all on the cutting room floor. And then in this episode's What Bike Should I Buy? We're going to look at budget road bikes. Yes, road bikes, because not everyone is actually buying gravel bikes. And turns out not everyone has multiple thousands of dollars to spend on a new bike. Go figure. But before, but before we get into all that, Kaylee, I believe we have a sponsor today, don't we? We do indeed. The sponsor of today's episode, this week's episode, is brought to you by Bontrager, who recently added four models to their Aeolus family of carbon road wheels, including the all-new Aeolus RSL 37, the lightest aero carbon road wheel they have ever made. Ever. Aeolus RSL 37 is light and speed wrapped up in one. I don't know how you, how do you do that? How do you wrap light? Anyway, a set weighs in in a mere 1,325 grams, but their speed is what helps set them apart. Wind tunnel tested to be faster than deeper wheels while still being lighter than shallower wheels. This sounds like some sort of Goldilocks holy grail here. Aeolus is a climber's wheel for those that want to be faster everywhere. Bontrager also added the new Aeolus Pro 37 to the lineup, featuring the same all-new rim design and shape, but at a more affordable price point. Also, the new Aeolus Elite, available in both 35mm and 50mm depths, the Aeolus Elite brings proven design at an unheard-of price point. And like all Bontrager carbon wheels, they are warranted for life and backed by Carbon Care, offering two years of no-cost replacement, which is great. Can I just add, that Carbon Care... Amazing. I uh, I botched a jump a few weeks back with a Bontrager rear wheel. Um, not Bontrager's fault that I landed firmly on a rock and not on the actual jump landing. Uh, and yeah, new wheel is on its way to me. That's hmm, pretty fantastic. About that. yeah. There you go. Carbon care and a whole new lineup of Aeolus wheels. Speed and lightness. That I sounds also... very convincing, Kayla. <laughs> <laughs> I also had Abby uh, read that, so hers is probably better, and we maybe just drop that into the episode. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I, I, I wonder if maybe we should like just run both of them and just have people vote on which one is more convincing. <laughs> uh, I mean, so Bontrager, like they, they've been an advertiser since early on in the Cycling Tips podcast, and they appreciated our sort of you know, playing around with the scripting, and so I'm hoping that they won't send me too many nasty The, the real take. Yeah, the hmm. real take. The real take is those are those sound like good wheels. They do. Well, thankfully, we are not talking about Bontrager wheels today. So hopefully no one's going to come at us and say that this is all sponsored content and we're lining our pockets. Um, so let's just go ahead and get into it. Moots News. Moots News. So the Route RSL titanium gravel bike that they make is hands down one of my favorite bikes I've ever ridden. Like had I had a little bit more money... I, without question, would have bought the one I reviewed, I think, a couple of years ago now. Uh, and it honestly made me sad to give, it, to, to give it back. It really, really made me sad. But now they have announced that they have completely revamped the route lineup. And kind of in a trend that we're seeing recently from other companies with their gravel bikes, they're kind of going a little bit more into the mountain bike realm a little bit. And, you know, kind of going with the whole longer and slacker thing. Um, so they have lengthened the front ends and they're designed around stems that are about 10 to 20 mils shorter than what they were before. And uh, they're supposed to be paired with wider handlebars. So the fit is kind of the same as it was before. And most importantly, they have redesigned them to be, uh, or to fit wider tires. So the Route RSL, it now goes up to 700 by 45 millimeter and the Route 45 
uh, even though they were keeping the name, now it goes up to 50 millimeters. What's kind of interesting about these is that it's still retaining two bike drivetrain compatibility. But one key detail from all this that I want to talk about is the fact that Moots is specifying that that two bike compatibility is only the case with SRAM's new wide range force wide ETAP axis drivetrain or one of Shimano's GRX variants because both of those have slightly altered chain lines. Uh, so in mm -hmm. other words, I mean, Moots is pretty explicit about this. They say that quote unquote regular road two by drivetrains supposedly will not work or at least won't provide as much tire clearance as you're supposed to be able to get. So what I want to know here is, is this a sign of things to come? Dave, I know you have been kind of digging around on this concept of road boost. Road boost. So I, I kind of want to pick your brain here. Like, do you think this is where things are going? Digging around is a stretch. I've been joking about it for many years. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I, I guess E Road is quite telling of where of where things are going. Um, e Road bikes for the I guess two years now have have been using a, a mountain bike boost spacing, which offsets the drivetrain outward, which uh, um, you know provides more tire clearance and, and various other fancy little things. Makes um, all your wheels obsolete. Yep. Mainly that. Um, Zach, what, what did you want to add? I have built a gravel bike that had boost. Oh. Yeah. I don't remember who, who it was, but it was a titanium custom builder. And it had a booster rear end and mountain bike cranks. Mm. <laughs> was it more bike. like a bike packing bike or is it like an nope. actual light gravel, bike. gravel bike? Mm. Gravel well, bike. No, I, think, I think Moots does that already on their Baxter, don't they? Uh, um, not because sure. Because our... our our friend Matt Barlow, uh, who is often our videographer here in the U.S., um, you know, he has a Moots Baxter, and I'm pretty sure uh, I'm going to feel really dumb if this turns out to not be the case, but I'm pretty sure that frame does already use mountain bike boost spacing so that they can get more more tire clearance. So to, to, to recap, for people who are not familiar with what we're talking about with boost, basically the idea is that uh, I guess when boost was announced on mountain bikes, this was something that Trek and SRAM came up with a few years ago. Um, essentially what they did is they made the rear end of the bike six millimeters wider and they offset the drivetrain three millimeters outboard, the whole thing, cassette and chain rings and everything, basically so that you could get a little bit more tire clearance, a little bit more drivetrain clearance without making the chain stays longer. And then here, what we're talking about with road boost is potentially not so much that the rear hub has to be wider. Um, but we are already seeing that cranks are being offset outboard a little bit to try and give you a little mm -hmm. bit more tire clearance, which is certainly a pretty key factor when it comes to gravel bikes these days. And with Moots making this announcement that, you know, to, to explicitly basically just rule out a whole bunch of conventional road drivetrains on what has been a really popular range of bikes for them is pretty significant, I think. And it just, again, it does make me wonder if this is the way things are going to go moving forward. I mean, it's particularly interesting to me that, that so I didn't write the story, I didn't write the headline that we have on Cycling Tips, but I read it this morning. It popped up as I, when, after I woke up and I took a look at it. And you know, we're now describing gravel bikes in the same terms that we describe mountain bikes. Long, low, slack, I mean, this is literally every single new mountain bike headline for the last eight, nine, ten years has included those three words. That's a relatively new thing, though, for the gravel world. And we're talking about like, you know, OK, yeah, the BMC, the ERS is sort of, you know, headed towards mountain bike technology, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're seeing it from basically every single new gravel bike that's coming out is this sort of 
mountain bike inspired like i said using the same the same words long low slack suddenly that's what people want out of a gravel bike as opposed to a road bike that fits a slightly bigger tire which is what they were for the first half decade of their of their existence i mean those those kind of more road like gravel bikes are still out there but it really does seem like the the most excitement is coming from the gravel bike or the segments of the gravel bike market that are kind of more you know, more versatile, more off-roady, more fun, I have to say. I mean, because, you know, like I just did that big in-depth review of the Diverge and that bike, you know, it definitely moves more into mountain bike territory in terms of, of geometry. And, you know, the Specialized Diverge is about as mainstream as it gets. And if that bike is moving more into mountain bike territory for for gravel, then you'd have to think that that is where the middle of the market is moving, which is super intriguing because, I mean, Kayla, you have... You have had this opinion for a while, and I know we've mentioned this on the podcast before that, you know, whereas gravel seemed to originally have started as kind of this thing that, you know, kind of roadies were sort of trying out. They were kind of like gravel curious, so to speak. Um, as more people get into gravel, I mean, you know, those of us who have always ridden road and off-road have always known that riding bikes off-road is fun. Riding mountain bikes in particular is really fun. And for people who are coming into the gravel scene and just kind of moving off tarmac, maybe for the first time or for the first time, you know, returning back to it for a few years. I mean, these things are really, really fun. And it does beg the question if people are, hold on a second. <laughs> Small I'm, I'm out on the balcony on this, in this place in winter park. And my kid is down below at the Creek. And I think she's fishing with some friends right now. And I, I, she wanted me to come look at something and I can't right now. Anyway, you can go look at the fish. <laughs> Take us with you. <laughs> I, don't she, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think she has a fish right now. But uh, if, you, if you do see, hear some high-pitched squealing, there, I am also sitting beneath a very active hummingbird feeder. Uh, and there are a lot of hummingbirds out here. So just, just so you know, if you hear some of that, you know, some of that characteristic noise, that is a, a hummingbird that is above my head that's hopefully, hopefully not pooping on me. Uh, anyway. Is that a hummingbird noise? What, I don't, I don't know. So. <laughs> We're bad at bird noises on this. <laughs> Only good whales. So, <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, I mean, the gravel market does seem to be moving further off-road. And as more roadies discover kind of the fun of riding off tarmac, you know, Kaylee, this idea that you've had that people are just going to have, you know, end up feeling this resurgence of cross-country mountain bikes. I mean, it does seem like it's really happening. I think some of it, yeah, I think some of it depends on where you live. You know, if, if you were from some of the sort of original hotbeds of gravel the midwest of the united states for example then a gravel bike still really makes sense i mean zach you're from indiana like oh, yeah, yeah you, you grew up mountain biking but if you had grown up you know a little further out in the country farther away from trails you're probably on the gravel bike train for yeah quite a, for i mean quite the a gravel there was you couldn't ride on a road bike because it was so bad yeah and you, there weren't gravel bikes so you did it on your cross bike which is the predecessor to the gravel bike <laughs> <laughs> but you know so if you live in in a place where gravel bikes really truly make sense which is sort of this like big wide but rough roads then you know i think the gravel bike surge will continue but for me you know if you live in any of the many 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 places that actually have quite decent single track nearby or, or a little bit uh you know more technical gravel perhaps I do see people picking up cross country bikes. I mean, just sort of in the in the N equals my friend group kind of thing. Zach and I have a bunch of riding buddies who have recently picked up mountain bikes and yeah. are recently trying to get good at mountain bikes. And they basically went road bikes, gravel bikes, 
oh wait my gravel bike is not very good when it gets rough why don't i try this mountain bike thing oh this bike is just as fast on most of the things i'm riding and way more fun on the 20 percent single yeah. track that i'm riding so i i Maybe this is just my deep-seated hope of the return of Norba, but I really, <laughs> I really, I really see, I see cross country as being sort of I mean, the next gravel and sort of the next thing that people step into, which is for me super exciting because Zach and I have been cross country racers since you know, well, not quite as long as James, but a long time, and I, I cross country is super fun, and I, I would love it to be the next thing. Well, especially now because the bikes are so good. But speaking of the bikes, I mean, as more and more of these gravel bikes stray further into this off-road realm, you know, the question does come up a lot. You know, these these bikes are getting heavier, especially as bikes or especially as companies continue to add kind of more of these you know suspension elements. You know, the Diverge has that twenty millimeter Future Shock thing. We we covered the Cannondale Lefty or Topstone Lefty not too long ago. I mean, these bikes are getting more capable, but they are also getting heavier. And in the process, they are getting even closer to hardtails in terms of weight. I and mean, they're really not that different. Um, so when you get to that point, I mean, why not just ride a hardtail? I mean, talking about the Diverge, the Epic hardtail frame, and most of the time the bike, depending on the model, is lighter than the Diverge. Which to <laughs> me, like if it's if it's lighter, why not just have the more capable bike? Yeah. I think there's some arguments around, like I said, if you live in Kansas and you're, and you're riding dirty Kansas type roads on a regular basis, like having all the different hand, like hand positions of a drop bar, like that's great. It's sort of the balance between that. But then, and then, then do you need the slack angles and the mountain bike size tires no, and the dropper post on your gravel bike? You absolutely do not. And that's the really interesting thing about where the industry is going right now, which we have to assume is a reflection of what they're hearing, particularly from a company like Specialized. Specialized does their homework. Specialized does not come out with products that it's trying to move the market with. It's just really, it's just reflecting what people are asking for. And if if they're coming out with a new Diverge, particularly a flat bar version, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to think that they've that they've done that homework and that they know that people are looking for these more mountain bike like geometries. So yeah, then that that gap between a gravel bike and a cross country bike truly starts to close and in fact fully overlap in many ways like you said like you said yeah. weight is one of them the only thing that is really going to keep people on gravel bikes then is if you have a significant amount of sort of really smooth road or 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 gravel and you want the hand positions right yeah. because there is no question that a flat bar and the, and the as gearing. soon as it gets rough yeah, but you can put any gearing you want on any bike, right? Like, you can figure that out yeah. uh, for the most part. You know, there's no question that drop bars are worse when it gets technical. There's absolutely – don't send me pictures of John Tomac. <laughs> I've seen the pictures of John Tomac. He realized it was a bad idea and went back to flat bars, so don't give me that. <laughs> and and plus, plus he was a freak. Plus he was a freak, and yeah, he's uh, we are not John Tomac. None of us are. Uh, flat bars are just better. It's a better wrist position. You have better control over the better grip over the controls. So brakes and shifters and everything else. All these in things are more accessible in on off-road conditions. So yeah, I think I think people are going to start trending that direction, and it'll be interesting to see if we if if we get some kind of grassroots level cross-country racing. Maybe a sort of almost a mix between gravel racing and cross-country racing, where you have like a bunch of roads and then also some single track, and it's kind of a... I could see races like that start to pop up, and then we'll know that it's truly coming. I mean, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but in Australia, our early gravel races were mostly ridden by people on hardtail mountain bikes. Like, it's, you know, people are just 
that's the bike they had that's the bike they ran and um yeah i mean and then you know slowly people have been adopting gravel bikes but coming back again either way i mean this is definitely a really uh i guess intriguing trend that we're gonna follow here because uh i mean it seems like the you know the bike industry has this annoying habit of taking the things that are good and just moving continually in that direction maybe well past where they should stop so we'll see where this ends up but i have a feeling that that line is going to continue to be crossed and we're going to maybe backtrack a little bit but we'll see i think i think the interesting thing to me is how someone that's already discovered the wonderfulness that is mountain biking and that has a cross-country mountain bike and a very squishy mountain bike i prefer my gravel bike to basically be more road geometry rather than a mountain bike geometry gravel bike because like if i, I want to go do something that's single track i'm going to ride my mountain bike and if i want to go ride dirt roads i'm just going to ride either my road bike or my gravel bike that has mostly road geometry with this bigger tires so it'll be yeah, interesting to totally. see if the the geometry trend swings back once people start buying mountain bikes yeah right totally agree and and you know we we have certainly been accused of being definitely a little boulder centric i guess you know dave sorry we kind of outnumber you here um (laughs) but it is very important to remember that people do ride all over the world and they have all sorts of different conditions everywhere so i mean this sort of trend is going to vary somewhat somewhat depending on where you are and the type of terrain you have available so we'll continue to keep our eye on it we'll see uh in other tech news we've had a bunch of wheel launches lately and it seemed to be kind of a a steady flurry over the last few weeks and months and uh reserve the wheel brand offshoot of santa cruz bicycles i've been informed very carefully that it is not a division of santa cruz bicycles it's completely a quote-unquote standalone brand just like Revol. um just like Revol and bontrager exactly exactly <laughs> we not, don't not believe you <laughs> <laughs> not, not in not in any way associated with specialized trek or giant very important to note we don't uh, but anyway reserve has expanded into road with three new aero road wheels that have been uh, supposedly designed by their corporate cousins at cervello uh, built around dt swiss hubs uh, pretty decent not exceptional weights quite a bit of money um you know based on all the information that i was provided for this you know quote unquote launch this rollout so to speak uh i mean it kind of feels like more of an oem play here mainly in the sense that you know it is a fairly well-known brand in off-road circles i mean the reserve wheels i mean they made a big splash in mountain bike just mainly from the fact that they have been billed as virtually indestructible i mean a lot of us have seen that kind of launch video that they did with their sponsored rider danny mccaskill where he tried and essentially essentially failed to break a set of wheels like even doing you know concrete stair gaps on tire on on wheels with no tires on them um but with these with these road wheels i mean yeah like i said they're they don't particularly stand out but i know that they are going to be coming oem on cervello bikes pretty soon Hmm. so i mean the thing that i'm kind of curious about is why bother at this point i mean yes i mean they they didn't really they didn't release any aero data um on paper they don't seem particularly compelling i mean they're not even going to be available aftermarket until 2021 so i mean do we think this is just an oem play and even if it is why bother i i think it's just an oem play and i think if you're sort of looking at the at the business side of this it's basically you know they could put they could put sort of a regular you know unbranded possibly straight out of a out of a catalog out of taiwan kind of wheel set on a cervello 
and the people who buy cervellas don't want that the people who buy cervellas want a, a wheel with a name that they've heard of that has a little bit of cachet to it so my guess is that this whole thing is basically to build a bit of cachet around this brand, which they can then just stick on their own bikes and save a bit of money. Because frankly, they, if they're making their own wheels, they will save money versus having to put on a set of Mavics or a set of Zips or whatever. It, it's just a, I think this is this is most mostly accountants uh, making this decision more so than any you know product manager engineer. There's no real reason to not go with one of the big wheel brands other than it's going to save them some cash. That's the only reason I can see to do this. I mean, I think they look sweet. DT, <laughs> DT hubs, external nipples, and hooked rims. Like, what more do you want? Uh, yeah. Zach's right. I, I, I should be clear. I'm not saying these are bad wheels. I'm just saying that, like, there are lots yeah. of other good wheels out there, and I see this no, as no, I mean, just a business play. They, they definitely don't seem bad to me at all. I mean, uh, they, they seem you know, really as good as just a whole bunch of other things that are out there. But the issue now is, especially given recent debuts that we've had from uh you know from other brands like you know zip von trigger whatnot um 2400 bucks us with dt swiss 240 hubs i mean that's not an exceptional price point anymore so you know to to offer what seems to be basically like a me too wheel at that kind of price i just like doesn't make a lot of sense but, but that's, this is what i mean but like they i think they put that price in them because they're trying to build some brand cachet for right, the wheels they that they're selling on their own bike. Buy them. Yeah, so like if you if you're standing on a shop floor and you sell Cervelos and you're, you know, you're a high school kid working in a bike shop, you're like, "Okay, rich guy, you want this $12,000 Cervelo because check out these wheels. These wheels, these wheels are worth 2400 bucks just on their own." If you if you do that exact same thing and say, "These wheels, these wheels were put on because Cervelo wanted to save money on wheels." That's a less <laughs> that's a less sexy sales pitch. So yeah, I I think that in order to make it work as a proper OEM, that people aren't just going to want to swap out immediately. They have to build some cachet around the brand, which means they have to have kind of expensive wheels. Which means they ha- they probably had to get you know those Cervelo engineers involved in the in the process and build their own, and they can't just take something out of a catalog. Yeah, they're good wheels. They're probably worth twenty four hundred bucks as much as any other twenty four hundred dollar wheel. But I think that the the real reason behind this is just, like I said, it's just build some cachet, run them OEM, save one hundred fifty bucks per bike, and your accountants are happy. I do think it's interesting. I bet the at like the bulk of average Cervelo customers have probably barely ever heard of Santa Cruz, let alone reserve wheels. <laughs> so it's like an interesting move on that. On that front, to me, I feel like yeah, to build that cachet with a brand that's not no, totally. Like, if they just put connected. Cervelo on the rim, more people would be like, "Ooh, ah, right." Versus <laughs> Reserve, yeah. I don't know. Reserve is like nice wines or something. I, you know, it's got it's got some, yeah. a little bit of cachet to it to the word, but yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I don't expect. I don't think anybody around around this Google Hangout expects those to fly off the shelves uh, as an aftermarket wheel set, but if Cervelo can convince their customers that it's a worthy wheel for their high-end bikes, I think that's a success for them. Fair enough. Speaking of wheels, though, we have another wheel launch that came out a little while ago that uh, I would argue is even more interesting, certainly on a, on a bunch of different fronts here. The Bontrager. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've been paid. <laughs> Big bike. I, I, I think I think I see those five dollar bills sticking out of your pocket there, Kaylee. Yep. Uh-huh. 
Yep. That 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 is all it takes. Alex you know, a couple five dollar bills, and we just yep. you just slipped a couple couple fivers in the uh, in the envelope. Yep. Yep. And that's it. That that is all it takes. It's all it takes. You know, <laughs> buy me a burrito. Happen, I'm good. Just to be very clear. Anyway, Spinergy, the company that people perhaps know best for the old Revex bladed carbon fiber wheels from Prosciutto way back slicer. in the day. <laughs> Prosciutto slicer, indeed. Now, I mean, I remember I was around when they were contemporary. Uh, I think most of you guys were maybe either not alive or still drinking out of bottles. Uh, but anyway, they, they, they recently just, I mean, they've been trying to kind of come back onto the scene and they just came out with these new wheels, these new gravel wheels. Uh, and they're no longer doing, I mean, they abandoned the whole RevX concept ages ago, the whole like, you know, flat wide carbon fiber uh, co-molded spoke thing. And they have moved toward wheels that have these fiber spokes. Uh, so Dave, you were the art. Yeah. yeah, they've had those for a long time. I and mean, they, they, I mean, if, for people who remember Spinergy spokes, um, you know, they tried to, to, to move into that d- direction decades ago and they're still at it. Uh, but these gravel wheels actually look kind of interesting. And I mean, the price certainly helps. Uh, Dave, what's the story here? Um, yeah, it's, it's a US made carbon fiber gravel wheel set that costs $999. I think that's probably the the thing that's most amazing here is even like the hubs they make in house and they're using a a well-established brand for the the free up bodies they're using hadley racing which is like a real old school mountain bike hub manufacturer um with legendary durability i should add yeah crazy durability they're using like enduro bearings in these hubs um like everything they're doing on these wheels is amazing when you look at that price well and and the rims are apparently foam filled is that correct yeah, so the the manufacturing technique is foam filled. I believe they've always done that with their carbon rims. Um, it's you know it's not too different to what Karima in France does, where it's uh, yeah, I guess it's you know it just having that foam fill means you can get you can guarantee the the carbon compaction um, without having to use any special bladders. Um, so yeah, it, it in theory allows you to make a, I guess you could do a more cost efficient rim that way. Uh, one point and a question. Uh, my point is that they should bring back the RevX and just get it over with because yeah. I think everyone, people everyone would be super stoked on that. I would be crazy Pe- stoked. People were scared about chopping their fingers off with disc brakes, so let's just... Uh, you can let's round, just let them round actually the cut their fingers off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just round the edge. Um, yeah, just, just make what, them sharper. Like, like just embrace it. What is interesting <laughs> is that Spinergy's making a very... Uh, a very clear play to come back into cycling, but what, uh, what I find interesting is that they actually never... They never went out of business. They became uh, what I believe to be is like one of the market leaders in the wheelchair market. Um, so, you know, their technology has been, they've been progressing this technology with the fiber spokes for all these years. And then finally, they've they've made the jump back in. But their pricing to me is is the most interesting point where they they seem to be cutting everyone else um, from a price point of view, which kind of tells me that maybe they don't have as much faith in uh just selling on the technology alone hmm. kaylee my yeah my question was the the fiber spokes are there claims made around comfort with those you can take yeah, them off the wheel and the tie them so, in a knot <laughs> so that's so, what i always I mean, like wanted for my spokes <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Spinergy has, you know, this fiber technology thing is not new at all. Like I said, Spinergy tried to make this play decades ago with spokes, like S-P-O-X. And basically they are just, 
you know, they're, they're textile spokes that they, they have to be loaded in tension. If there's no tension on them, you can basically just wrap them around your finger. Um, and their, their contention is that they offer a smoother ride, especially in combination with these foam filled rims that, you know, supposedly damp vibration, whatever. And, you know, previously there really wasn't, wasn't really much of a draw to that kind of claim because, you know, the whole ride quality thing just wasn't that big of a deal in the markets that they were trying to play in, like, you know, the conventional road and the conventional mountain bike ones. Um, but on gravel, uh, you know, most gravel bikes, you are riding on rougher terrain. You usually don't have suspension. And, you know, you really are trying to get a lot more ride quality out of bits that, you know, just honestly don't offer as much ride quality as a regular mountain bike or something with proper suspension. So, you know, if this thing actually comes to pass, like if these claims are actually true, um, I guess I'll find out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to request a test set pretty soon here. But, I mean, if that stuff does actually you know, deliver that sort of stuff, then they may have an argument here. I mean, especially for that kind of money and with those kind of quality components. And uh, I think it'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool well, if these wheels worth, are that good. Worth noting is that those fiber spokes are under a lot of tension. So I don't believe that as a wheel structure, there'd be a huge amount of given it. But what they do claim is that the fiber spokes um, absorb vibration compared to steel spokes, or they at least prolong the, the vibration the way it disperses from one end of the wheel to the other. Right. So, so it's not, it's yeah. not so much like a built-in suspension thing, but it's more yeah. like a like a vibration damping thing. So it's more That's like what a, they claim. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more like offering like a more of a muted ride as opposed to like something cushier. But if it yeah. still feels softer and more comfy, then yeah, you know, sure. then there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I was thinking of the um, the SRAM Zip mountain bike rims. Moto. What are they called? The Moto. The Moto. Um, yep. Like the super thin single wall. And the whole idea is that, it, you know, the, the actual rim itself can like flex around impacts and things like that. And I guess I was just sort of imagining that in in line with a fiber spoke and, and picturing a, quite a comfortable wheel set. But the rims themselves are not that same sort of technology. So with the push for bigger and bigger tires on gravel bikes, is wheel compliance a big issue when you're running big tires with lower pressure? Well, you know, that's always this question because, you know, especially when people say that you get all this compliance and comfort from the tires, that it shouldn't matter if, you know, frames or forks offer any kind of give to them. But I would argue, you know, like I, I've ridden fat bikes for years and years now, and, you know, those tires are four or five inches wide. And I still, I mean, I've experimented with no suspension, front suspension, front and rear suspension. And I would argue that, it still makes a difference depending on the conditions. And we certainly learned from the gravel bike field test that even though you are running tires that are, you know, 40 millimeters wide, you know, maybe even wider, I mean, frame and fork compliance still does make a difference. I mean, like, you know, not to keep harping on that evil bikes, chamois Hagar, but you know, that bike ran the same tire width as every other bike that we had on test. And there was absolutely no question whatsoever that that bike rode substantially harsher than, yeah almost every other bike that we had there. And, you know, you can't blame the tires for that. I mean, that was all frame and fork. So the tires can't yeah. do everything. Yeah. I mean, wheels can definitely be too stiff. That's been proven in the mountain bike world where uh, I remember years ago speaking with Raul Lucia, the carbon expert, where he had consulted with, um, I've forgotten his first name, but Baumeister, who now is part of Crank Brothers Wheel Design. Um, and they had done a ton of research around um, stiffness of wheels, and they did find that you could make a mountain bike wheel that was too stiff, and that, yeah, you basically you don't want a mountain bike wheel that that becomes so rigid, despite having such a big tire and despite having suspension. 
uh, there is an impact on traction and there is an impact on how it rides. Anyway, that is enough about wheels, I think. Uh, you know, we prefaced this whole episode by saying that this is going to be a very extended Ask a Mechanic episode. So I think we should just go ahead and jump right into it. What do you think? Let's do it. Let's ask a mechanic. All right. I have all the answers. Right? We're asking Kaylee, right? right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Just sitting here with all the answers tumbling around in my brain, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a big old so bowl, of, bowl of confusion there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. We are going to kick this off with Vela Club member Patrick Stanger from San Francisco, California. And Patrick would like to know, should you always use friction paste? I'm assuming he's asking about things that are kind of clamped here. Uh, or do you only need it if something slips? Zach, what, what do you do here? Yeah, I would say definitely for seat posts always, so you don't get a stuck seat post. Um, I would say handlebars, I mean, as long as everything's made properly, like you theoretically shouldn't need friction paste in between your handlebar and your stem when it's torqued down properly. Yeah, I guess. can't hurt though? Yeah, it can't hurt anything. So is that a yes? Basically just use it just to be safe? Or? Yeah, I guess if you want. I would say, yeah, that's not really the great answer, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say that that sounds like a very definitive position. I, mean, I guess what I do, you know, for 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 frames that are metal on metal, as yep, far as grease. the seat post goes, I, I usually use grease there. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. And then handlebars and stems, again, if it's metal on metal, I usually assemble those dry. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, if there's a carbon interface anywhere, be it the handlebar or the steerer or the seat post, I usually, I almost always use friction paste um, because, again, I mean, it, does, it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, so what you said it makes it... was just what I was thinking, but in much, much better words. <laughs> <laughs> and and which friction paste are you guys using? Uh, I've got uh, a huge tub of finish line stuff, I think. Yeah, most, most of it is pretty similar. I mean, it, it's basically all just like, you know, little tiny, I think, plastic microbeads that are eventually going to flush into the ocean and contaminate all the yep. fish. So, Bikes, uh, great for the environment. Not, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, anyway, Patrick, it sounds like our general recommendation is to use it if you have carbon parts involved, and otherwise you can probably get away with grease or dry, depending on the application. Follow-up question. Uh, Follow-up question. Uh, I have used friction paste in a seat post frame interface, aluminum seat post, because it's a dropper, carbon frame, and yep. it creaked like crazy. In that instance, like, do I go to grease? Do I try a different friction paste? What 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 do I do here? I would say, because I know this is you, so I, <laughs> usually when you see a seat post that's creaking, even if I'm not a mountain bike or road bike or whatever, and there's friction paste in there, usually it's not all the way on the seat post. You pull the post out and there's carbon paste, but like the front half of the post that's in the frame or something is not, is just totally dry. So I would slather as much in there as you can maybe spin it around to make sure it's evenly coated and then yeah wipe off any excess so this is a user error problem user okay. error but <laughs> this is kaylee the mechanic indeed indeed all right moving on another vela club member ivan Vuk- oh, i'm gonna butcher your last name vukomanovich who been. is somewhere somewhere in europe uh another another sort of assembly question here uh he would like to know if he should use grease loctite or something else between spokes and nipples when wheel building? I mean, I'd say that's very much a wheel builder preference. Um, I mean, they're like- What do you do? 
real smith spoke prep works pretty well so there's the dt spoke freeze i think is what it's called which is more of like a that's a permanent post, it's not going anywhere yeah um some people like to just use oil with the theory that if it's built to the correct tension and is even that it's not going to back out um yeah i mean there's every wheel builder has their own their own preferences there but but i feel like most but i would not do I a dry like more, i guess yeah but I feel like more wheel builders than not prefer something that helps the nipples kind of lock in place to some degree after yep. the wheel sets and after it's assembled. I mean, I personally use linseed oil. It's kind of a more of an old school thing, yep, definitely. Um, mainly because it, it provides some really good lubrication while you are building the wheel and then it eventually kind of like gums up uh, and then basically acts as spoke prep or, you know, Loctite. And, uh, but it keeps the nipples from, from loosening up over time, but it also still allows you to really easily true the wheel if you have to. So I like linseed oil personally. The alternative is you could just use DT Prolock nipples, which have a little nylon ring inside there. And then you don't have to worry about figuring out what you want to use on the spoke threads. Right, right. And even then, I mean, and, and at that point, those nipples are made of brass. So if you, even if you leave the threads dry, I mean, they're, they're, those nipples are still kind of self-lubricating to an extent. Uh, so when you build them, it, you know, it's not super necessary to lube the threads, I feel like. Yeah. I hear a hummingbird. That that was a hummingbird. I mean, they're they're literally didn't, coming every time. Didn't sound anything like you. Quite, they're they're quite cute, I have to say. All right, moving on. Another Vela Club member, H. Fung. I don't know where he is, uh, but uh, in his quest for marginal gains, he said he has Shimano Altegra 160 millimeter diameter disc rotors on his gravel bike. Or actually, I don't know if it's a him or her. Uh, anyway, to improve braking. Would changing to GRX levers with a higher pivot point or using four piston calipers such as Shimano XT provide a worthwhile benefit? I guess I would ask why does he need more power in the first place on a road bike? Well, here's the thing. I guess I don't well, it's on his gravel bike, and I don't I don't know what reason, you know, I don't know why they would want more power. Um, but that, I guess that's neither here nor there. I guess for yeah. me. One thing I should point out is, you know, there are there has been a lot of talk about GRX levers having this slightly revised pivot point on the levers to give you more leverage when you're pulling the brakes. Um, that only happens with DI2, though. So I will say that, you know, there has been a lot of mention about GRX levers having a different pivot point. And uh, I should clarify that that really is only the case with the DI2 levers. The mechanical ones basically are the same as usual, so that's not really going to get you anything. And then with running four-piston calipers, uh, I would have to check and see if the hydraulic ratios would even allow I mean, I would that. also assume if he has Altegra that he has flat mount. So a XC four piston caliper wouldn't, wouldn't work so well I mean, on there. there. They're adapters, are, but... Yeah, you are getting to the point now where you know companies are starting to offer flat mount mountain bike brakes to an extent. Um, but even before any of that, uh, I would say that if you are specifically looking for more power... Far and away, the cheapest and most effective way to do that without spending a ton of money and without having to go through a whole bunch of work is to just upgrade the brake pads. Um, so Shimano's brake pads do work pretty well, but they're not always necessarily the best. Uh, so I would probably go with um, maybe a Swiss stop compound and maybe maybe contact them and see. Or even I'd say too, like stock out of the box, all Shimano red stuff comes with resin pads. So I would just go into a metallic is immediately going to give you way more power. Yeah, yeah, especially especially in the wet, for sure. Uh, I mean, they'd be noisier, um, even wet or dry, um, but they would likely give you some more bite. So I would go with pads first. And like I said, that would be far and away the least expensive solution. Stephen Keller from Virginia Beach, Virginia, would like to know, uh, I guess living next to the ocean is a little bit of a concern for this, 
any tips for preventing rust buildup on all the heads of the bolts? He said he usually finds it on the stem, caliper, brake bolt, etc. He usually rinses and washes his bike once a week and definitely after wet rides. Dry them after washing them. Yeah, dry them after, or if you don't want to deal with it, upgrade to stainless or titanium bolts. Or you could put like a thin film of grease or oil or something on the bolts to keep it from rusting. But I would, yeah, dry it. Use high quality bolts. Invest in an air compressor and yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, air compressor. Air air compressor and air gun. Yep. Um, Or, I mean, again, if if you don't want to deal with all that, I mean, either one of these is going to involve a fair bit of work. If you get an air compressor and an air gun, then, you know, you'll have to make sure you dry your bike off every time you wash it or if you're in a wet ride. Um, But there are a lot of options for ordering uh, standard metric stainless steel hardware. You have to be a little bit careful to get the right sizes and everything. But if you were to go through the trouble of replacing all those bolts with stainless, uh, then you won't have to deal with it at all. So, I guess that would—that's pretty much all your all your options are. I mean, you could like, yeah, like coat everything with grease, but that seems kind of messy. So, I guess that would be our recommendation there. Tie bolts. Tie bolts are expensive though. And the, I would—you definitely have to use NSEs so they don't corrode from other yeah, reasons. Yeah, I, I would just—I would just go with stainless. I just go with stainless. So yeah. anyway, Peter Watson from Nottingham in the UK. When fitting new press fit bottom brackets to a carbon frame, what would you recommend to avoid the dreaded creaks? Would you use grease, anti-seize, retaining compound, nothing, fairy dust, or just junk of the frame for one with threads? Definitely fairy dust. <laughs> no, I would say like, if at all possible, I would use one of the thread together bottom brackets that takes place of the press fit. If you have to use press fit, I would say in a carbon frame, I would use a Loctite. Like uh, I think the one I have, I don't remember the number. It's a green one. It's like a retaining compound that kind of just fills fills all the gaps and keeps things from creaking for as long as possible. Um, I would say if it was a metal frame with a metal press-in bottom bracket, I would usually use grease because it's higher tolerance and things like to get stuck if you really get it in there. Um, and, and the thick grease, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just a nice high-quality waterproof grease in there. Um, but yeah, carbon frame, I would, I would use a Loctite retaining compound uh, if you can't use a thread together one and, and with all those retaining compounds i can't remember the numbers either it's like 609 or 690 something like that but usually yeah. it's yeah. zero something like okay that. well it's it was six something um but for all of those there is a prep solution that you are supposed to use to make sure these surfaces are completely clean and you know, free of oils and everything so that the bonding agent can actually bond. So yeah. that's a pretty important thing to do too. Uh, Alex Ashbury from Cincinnati, Ohio. How do you determine the correct travel for a dropper post? He's looking to upgrade from his current ride circa 2003. Uh, I'll just go ahead and grab this one. Alex, if, depending on which dropper post you were looking at, pretty much every dropper post manufacturer out there offers some sort of guide for what will fit on your frame. So it's usually some combination of what your saddle height is and minimum seat post insertion and how much seat post is sticking out of your frame. So I would just go to uh, the manufacturer website and see if you can find the guide that's on there and then measure very precisely. Uh, Alternatively, um, I guess one of my preferred dropper post brands is one up mainly because you can kind of micro adjust how much extension you get from that seat post. Uh, and that, that design also is particularly tolerant of longer seat tubes and, you know, with kind of minimum extension. Uh, so give those, I, I would say, give all those brands a look, uh, take a look at those websites and make sure just, like I said, just measure carefully. And if you are looking to maximize the amount of drop, take a look at the one up. That would be my recommendation. All right, Harry Webster from Devon, UK. 
How far are we from having fully automatic gears? Surely there's a link between a power meter and electronic shifting uh, that opens up the possibility for manufacturers. It exists. It's yeah. just uh, in the performance category, there's a, <laughs> there is a benefit to having such manual control. So, um, yeah, I mean, Shimano made such a thing. Um, I don't know, James, you'd probably have a better idea of this, but they made such a thing in the, it was in for the a track, commuter right? space. Like Trek, was maybe ten years ago or something. They had a tiny mm. bike. I I feel like I've seen a like a late night infomercial for some sort oh, of yeah. automatic rear derailleur, with like a little spinny thing. It like spins around and yep. faster yep. it goes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was I, like the Nordic Track bike or something. I can't remember yeah. now. <laughs> really hope we don't get yep. automatic. Yeah, but it had, it had it had little. It basically had little weights that that extended oh, yeah, on the spokes. spokes. Oh yeah. yeah terrible oh, automatic cars are bad yeah, i remember yeah. i've worked on a couple of these <laughs> a long time ago so yeah. anyway harry this sort of thing does exist but we are certainly a long way from having that sort of thing work particularly well or be light or inexpensive so you know is it going to happen maybe but i wouldn't wait for it too long it where it will happen is e-bikes and that's where it makes a lot of sense and uh novinci i think it was they they have such a thing already in the works and it's already being applied to some bikes i rode a turn e-bike yeah Eurobike was such a thing um yeah, so yeah HSD. I mean, it, it, yes that's the one um and you know it was brand new at that point but you know more bikes expect it since um so yeah it, it makes a lot of sense on a category of bikes that aren't necessarily intended for cyclists or people that you know live and breathe cycling and riding bikes for recreation um uh, but you know when you come into the performance side being able to control such things isn't a bad thing I mean, it's yeah it's not, not too far off of cars right like high performance yeah. cars still have manual shifting even if they don't have a clutch they have flappy paddles which is basically di2 or etap yeah so basically yes i don't think yeah. we're ever going to see automatic shifting in high performance bikes yeah i would think an internal internal gearbox would probably be more i wouldn't say i wouldn't say never but it's not coming soon, soon yeah. than anything <coughs> but bless you excuse me because he's allergic to the idea of automatic shifting on bikes. <laughs> yes indeed yeah, indeed i think it, we it all makes are. me sneeze <laughs> Tim Neal in Melbourne, Australia would like to know what is the best tire pressure gauge? And he didn't specify what he means by best. Uh, Dave, I feel like you have thoughts on this. Yeah. Uh, according to Nino Schurter, it is your thumb. You press down with your your one hand <laughs> over the top of the other right hand with your thumb underneath and you press down on the tire and if you can feel the rim, it's it's too little and then you've got to add one PSI. For everyone else that isn't a, a world and Olympic champion, um, <laughs> I'm with Nino. This, this is my. This, this is, is my... Some, that's some cyclocross right there. Uh, so yeah, it, at the at the high end, um, it for me it's a com it's a conversation of whether you want digital or analog. You know, digital gives you better precision as far as being able to read the exact pressure, uh, but then you have batteries to contend with. Um, for me, Capius makes the very best digital gauge, uh, which is a, a brand local to you, James. I think they make the pinnacle for digital. For analog, uh, it's EVT, uh, Efficient Velo Tools, in, um, where are they? Portland. Um, and they make a really cool one, which is kind of like the Rolex of, uh, of pressure gauges. Uh, <laughs> for more affordable things, probably just like a Topeak Digital. Yeah. I would say as a race mechanic, like as long as it's consistent hey. and you use the same one every time, like that's, 
yeah it doesn't have to be fancy right well i would say one that that i've been kind of intrigued with with uh adding to or just check kind of checking out personally uh topeak makes a digital one that you can add in line with your existing pump mm -hmm. uh that uh i haven't again i haven't checked it out personally to to see how accurate it is or anything but i do like the fact that it would offer a very consistent measurement regardless of your 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 preferred air input source um yeah. so that is something to consider as well uh yeah. moving on uh, well, one one more because Tim is in Melbourne. I will give a shout out to a local Melbourne company, um, which is what I use a lot. Is the Fuka, which is the you know, little inflator. Uh, yeah, it's a digital tire so inflator with a very accurate digital pressure gauge built into it. So, um, and it makes a lot of noise. It's it does make a lot of noise. Yeah, mm -hmm. hang on, hang on. Let's just oh, on. Uh, let's see how this works for a podcast. Cover your ears, everyone. Cover your ears. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's quite loud. Remember when we did that to Abby? That was great. I do remember. I was going to bring that up. I believe there was a scream accompanied with that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on back to another Velo Club member, Joseph Applegate from Michigan. Uh, Zach, I think this one's for you. What do mechanics really think about tipping? Ooh. Is it an unexpected bonus or are they disappointed if they don't get one? He says, for the record, I always try to tip, especially when he gets some personal service. What do you think, Zach? My personal opinion is you should be charging appropriately so that you're not relying on tips and that you can pay your employees a proper wage so that they don't have to have tips to survive. Um, but tipping is definitely a very American thing. Like the rest of the world, it's kind of like, why do you do this? But <laughs> yeah. What yeah. about beer tips? Like are beer tips okay? I mean, if someone wants to bring me beer, I'm not going to complain, but it's not going to be like, oh, you brought me a $8 six pack. So now I'm going to discount your labor or whatever. Like, right. Right. It shouldn't be expected. It could be a nice bonus, but it's not something that is expected or that the mechanic should be grumpy about when they don't get. The exception to that, I would say, is if the mechanic, you know, does something without charging, then, you know, it's probably a nice little thank you. If uh, Then the owner of that bike shop is going to be upset that they're giving away free labor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, let's see here. I, I think it's pretty... I think you just go and you just grease the wheels with some beer every once in a while. It's not a tip. It's just, I appreciate you. It's a yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah. I would almost say like, I would more appreciate like a regular customer that their bike's not even in and they're not coming to pick up a bike. They just bring a beer or a bottle of whiskey or something just randomly. I would appreciate that more than like, oh, thank you for working on my bike that I'm picking up and paying for. I'm going to give you this. Because then it feels part of the transaction. Yeah, then it's kind yeah. of, the, yeah, for sure, a weird part of the transaction. Like, should I give you a discount or should I, whatever, do something faster? For example, sometimes when I'm headed up here because Zach helps me fix all the things that I've broken, I buy him a burrito on the way up. That's true. <laughs> on a pretty regular basis. I will say when I was working as a mechanic, uh, one of the things that I always appreciated is when uh, regular customers would come in Zach, like you were saying when, when it was not time, when, when it was not time to like pick up their bike or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I had regular customers who would not infrequently just sort of drop off fresh baked goods. Like they would drop off like a plate of cookies yeah. or something. And like that, that, that kind of, of like customer too, thank they you want for to come care in of them. and like hang out and shoot the shit. And yeah. Like, Hey, yeah. I brought you some beer. How about I drink one and you drink one too? Cause <laughs> it's the end of the day. And then we hang out. That sort of that's that's, that sort of thing is more of like just you know hey I appreciate you for taking care of me, here is a little token and everyone feels good at that yeah. point. Yeah. So less tip and more just yeah just yeah. little gifties. Okay, Mike Stead from Highland, Scotland. Uh, let's see here. How many people actually bother torquing 
brake hose bolt. And he's talking about hydraulic disc brakes here. James, you so have to say said, this in a Scottish accent. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the Scottish <laughs> accent is just not, not going to happen. Not going to happen. So he's saying an 8 millimeter crow foot adapter for torque wrenches is not very common. He doesn't see Park Tool making one, which is rather odd for such a common application. So, Zach, do you torque brake hose bolts? I would say no, I do not. Because I would say you can't, I mean, you could over tighten it, but you shouldn't be able to. Like if you're it's pretty using hard normal, normal hand strength, you're not going to over tighten it. And I would say the, the brakes where you should use a torque wrench, like the ones that come to mind are Magura, where you're threading a metal fitting into essentially a plastic lever, have a torque spec. But the torque spec is so low that it wouldn't even read accurately on a torque wrench. So then you're just going more by feel. Uh, I'm going to add something to this because I have, I never used to use a torque wrench for this task, but I've started to, um, not always, but sometimes, uh, mainly on test bikes. Um, and it's mainly because and, it gave you an excuse to buy another tool. Yes. No, no, no. I already have the tool. Don't be silly. Um, <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, what I found is that for Shimano and SRAM, the torque spec is actually way higher than you think is necessary. Um, it's actually so like it, it, it aligns with what Zach's saying. It's which, you know, you'd probably struggle to over tighten them. Like you're going to strip the strip the nut before you over tighten it. But it's, um, but yeah, I was just surprised by actually how much torque they require to be correctly tightened. So um, that's probably the only reason to use a torque wrench is that you are quite likely to under torque it out of fear of, uh, out of fear of stripping it. Yeah, I guess I would say I add to that. I have seen quite a few home mechanics try and hook up their brakes and not tighten it enough. And then they're like, my brakes yep. keep leaking, whatever. And you're like, oh, well, that's not tight at all. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, it might be worth getting the tool to just get a feel for how much torque is required. Um, SRAM with their ProBleak, it do provide that tool. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise it's, it's something you'd have to buy. All right, well, we do still have a few more questions, but we did say in the beginning of this podcast that we were gonna talk about a what bike should I buy segment focusing on more budget road bikes. And I feel like instead of, well, we'll leave some of these questions for another episode because we have plenty. We're just gonna continue. We're not gonna just abandon these completely, uh, but I think we should look at this budget road bike here because I think it's a topic worthy of discussion. All right, this week's what bike should I buy question comes from Michael Clark. Michael, I don't know where you are, but you are at looking for a road bike with a budget of one to $2,000 US. He is not particularly uh, choosy about big or little brands. He wants disc brakes. Doesn't really particularly care about the frame material. He said he loves to go fast. He's open to buying used. And he's mainly gonna be sticking to pavement here. If he does anything, he's gonna be doing grade one. So poorly paved roads. Uh, specific attributes that he wants. He said he wants a 12-speed drivetrain. I hate to break it to you, Michael, but that is not going to happen. Uh, you are definitely looking at 11-speed here. Uh, I definitely have some thoughts on this one, so I think I'm just going to go ahead and go first. So, Michael, the bike that I would choose for you here, I think it's safe to say that you are going to have to, well, you're going to want to go with one of the direct-to-consumer brands because you will get an awful lot more bang for your buck there. And the one that really struck my, or the one that really caught my eye is 
Uh, it's from Canyon, which is available in the U.S. Uh, it's the Endurious AL Disc 7.0. I had one... that same bike on my Oh, list. see? See, and that's why I wanted to go first, because oh, I kind of figured well that someone else might have it as well. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. So, so this bike is $1,900 U.S. It comes with really a pretty nice aluminum frame, uh, full carbon fork, name brand everything is Shimano 105 2x11 drivetrain, and Shimano 105 is pretty fantastic stuff. It comes with DT Swiss wheels even, uh, fully hydraulic disc brakes, front and rear. Uh, basically, really good quality stuff all around. It's not very, it's not very heavy. It's under nine kilos. So, uh, what is that in American units? Um, Freedom it's units. Like what? Yeah, nineteen pounds, something like that. I can't Sounds remember. Heavy. Hold on. <laughs> Eight point seven two kilograms. Uh, so with, without pedals, it's about about nineteen pounds or so, just over. But for the, for that kind of money. I don't think you're going to do any better than that because Canyon, I would say their geometry is pretty well sorted. Um, on this frame, you, it, it comes with 28 millimeter tires. It is officially cleared for 30 millimeter tires. Uh, my guess based on uh, Canyon's claims in the past is that you could probably go a little bit bigger if you wanted to. Uh, but if you are looking to go fast on not so great roads, um, I mean, I personally think that would be your way to go there. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I would have a hard time thinking that you're going to find anything better for that kind of money, at least how, in the new market. How much? Eighteen ninety nine. He wants to top out at two thousand bucks. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna that that was on my list, but I've got what I feel is a better option. Oh, oh which is the Giant Contend SL One disc. Ah, uh, you know, I looked at that too. Which is one thousand five hundred twenty five dollars US. Uh, has a frame that I feel would be on par with the Canyon. It has uh, the defuse seat post from Giant, which we all know to be very smooth. So I've ridden, um, I haven't ridden that exact model, but I've ridden the Contend AR, and it's it's a very it's a very nice riding bike. And the the SL version actually has a butted frame, which in theory would be even smoother. Um, and this bike has a very similar spec to the Canyon, but admittedly the wheels are not as good. Um, so I believe this, the giant will be a little bit heavier, but it is also a little bit cheaper, but, 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 uh, I believe just, you know, just taking a punt here, but based on the price point that we're looking at, I'm guessing Michael's might be new to cycling or road cycling. Uh, and just given that, I, I think there probably is merit in buying a bike from a bike shop where, you know, you might be able to embrace the local community and, you know, maybe find some like-minded riders through it and get the support that you need and, you know, uh, at the very least, get help with getting fitted to the bike from the start. And I think there is value in that. Hey, Dave, mm -hmm. uh, I hate to throw a wrench into the works here for you. Yep. Have you checked to see if that bike is available in the U.S.? I thought I saw it on the U.S. website. Are you telling me it's not available? <laughs> I don't think it is, actually. No points Michael. for Dave this week. <laughs> Michael, the U.S. is a mess at the moment anyway. Just just leave when you can. Go to Australia. Do Get the bike from quarantine. any other country. Your currency is weirdly in a good position still. Um, and then return home once things have settled. And you can ride your bike in, in peace. Because uh, yep, because Giant offers the Contend AR in the U.S., but I don't see the 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 lighter weight versions of that available anywhere. So, mm. so I think you're going to be a little bit out of luck on this one, Dave. So we're just going to go ahead and turn off your mic now. Kaylee. Goodbye. Zach, what do you think here? <laughs> I'll go. I'll go next. Uh, actually, no, Zach, you go third. You go third. Okay. I guess I would start by saying with the budget, you could get a lot more bang for your buck buying a used bike. 
you'd have to factor in probably having to replace whatever worn bits are on the bike. But with that, there's not going to be very many disc brake options out there. So if you want disc, I would probably stick with new. Um, my pick is only $100 more than the Canyon, and it would be the Trek ALR. Same 105 group set, probably a nicer frame. It's like nice hydro formed, and it comes in an amazing purple color. The Amanda? The Amanda ALR. Yeah, we actually have a friend who's about to buy one of those. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. That's what I would go with. Two grand, go to a bike shop, get fit. I'd say, or the, the other one was the CAD 13. Because you at this price point, it's going to be aluminum. The CAD 13, but it was $100 more than the Trek, so out of the budget. Um, but yeah, I would do the ALR, Amanda. I will say that purple in the, in the, uh, that purple in the Amanda ALR is pretty it's really good. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Uh, however, Kaylee was just doing research. I was just on my phone doing research over here because so my, my first thought was the CAD 13 because when I was in college racing bikes and had $27 to my name, along with most of my fellow students, everybody I knew owned a CAD. <laughs> I mean, I, I guarantee you, you could get a sweet CAD 8 on eBay for less than two grand. Oh, for sure. But it's going to yeah. have rim brakes. Yep, yep. So, But they're still sweet. Uh, and, and, the, and the 13 is a slight departure from previous models, slightly sort of like less kind of hard-nosed racer type of a bike, which is a bit un unfortunate. And did say that wants to go fast. That was the big thing. That's, that's what I kind of honed in, in on here in this particular, what bike should I buy? So Cat 13 came to mind. However, my actual recommendation is not in the budget because <laughs> rules are meant to be broken. And he did say he wants 12 speed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How to get there somehow. <laughs> no, I'm, it's... I'm half expecting a recommendation for a mountain bike. <laughs> Five, four, three. Scott scale. No, uh, <laughs> no, 200 bucks, 200 bucks over the budget, $2,200 us. The specialized LA sprint. Oh, I will, oh. I will say that in this budget, Literally no bike in the U.S. is available, so you're going to have to wait a few months. That's true. Yeah. Thanks, coronavirus. Uh, yeah. So the Specialized Delay Sprint, let me make my case for saving up an extra $200 and buying this bike instead. This bike is has won some of the biggest criteriums in this country underneath the Legion of L.A. guys. Uh, if you listen to our other podcasts, you know that Justin Williams, the founder of Legion, is about to be kicking off a podcast within this sort of cycling tips podcast house here. It's an awesome bike. It's a super fast bike. It's 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 aggro. It's, the geometry is dialed for racing. It's got some arrow cues, which is pretty cool from an, from an aluminum bike. It's super fast, super stiff. If you want to go fast, I think it's it's probably the best aluminum bike you can buy right now and it's only 200 bucks more than the budget would you ch would you choose that for poorly paved roads though because i reviewed that bike and i remember that bike riding particularly firm yeah but he says he wants to go fast so you know if you, if you just got you can fit 30s in that though. yeah and, and you can fit 30s because it's the disc model so just run a, a fat 28 or a 30 at lower pressure that's going to do more than most of these frames are going to have any indifference anyway. And I, I read, I read that as he's going to ride good roads, but also sometimes 
bad roads. That's how I read that anyway. In which case, yeah, run a set of 30s or a big set of 28s. Be perfectly happy. Yes, it's a little bit over the budget, but that bike is sick. It's awesome. And if you want to go fast and potentially race or even just race your buddies or do group rides or whatever, I think that's the bike. I mean, I'd say in terms of aluminum, just like the Ale, the Amanda, and the Cat 13 are all pretty sweet. They're all pretty solid. These like days. I would ride one tomorrow Yeah, and be okay with it. Do we have a winner? Yeah. No, nobody likes my canyon pick. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'll have to go with the canyon as well because that was second on my list. So, but I still think there's value in but going for a, local. For a hundred dollars more, you could point. get a bike that comes pre-assembled with a with that probably is, a little help in the bike fit and some aftermarket service. And exactly. That is true, so, and and it is, and yeah. it is purple. I feel like if and the canyon was like three hundred dollars less than for sure, but it's cl- yeah. it's close enough that it doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hmm. All right. Cool. Well, so the LA sprint. Um, I'm glad that everyone has reached a consensus, and uh, I nope, win the point nope. this week. I, I think. But I if think you want something we... different, there's nothing more different than a bike that's just not available in your country. <laughs> yeah. So, true. True. So the bikes basically. that are available aren't actually available here. So <laughs> yeah. So, actually, so there, Michael, there is no yeah. such thing as a bike under two thousand dollars that's available in this country right now. <laughs> right. So so I think that to to sum this up. Uh, Zach is saying you should buy a bike that's purple. Kaylee is saying that you need to save some more money. Uh, And then Dave is saying that you need to save up even more money and fly to Australia and buy this contend (laughs) that you cannot get by in the US. Oh, yeah, no, Australia's good. Yeah. And then bring it back. And then I'm saying that you should just go on your computer, click the button a few times, and have a bike delivered to your front door. Yeah. But I think personally, if I'm going to be an an unbiased judge, I'm going to give this week's point to zach Woo. oh yeah because because i mean I, I i did kind of forget about the amanda alr and i've seen that paint job in person it is fantastic i've ridden that bike it's really good trek has done a really good job with that and it is not much more expensive than the canyon like you said you do get the dealer support for an extra hundred bucks so ding 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 i think we have our winner all right trek amanda alr with shimano 105 there you go i'm okay with it it's a great bike and it's really cool looking so michael if you can find it anywhere pick that up let us know what you think about it there, there's none in stock anywhere yeah <laughs> none in stock anywhere so your, your, your chances of getting one are virtually zero but if you can manage to get one then kudos to you and let us know how you like it on that front all right used is not a bad idea but yeah used if you're okay with rim brakes yep. then i i would go that route yep anyway point but, to zach buddy point to zach congratulations zach. zach winner all right <laughs> And with that, I think we are going to wrap this one up because we are right at about an hour and 10, 15 minutes or so. And uh, it is we're currently recording this on Thursday evening in the U.S. And we are all on holiday tomorrow. And I'm ready to go on vacation because I, I will be gone tomorrow. for the next two weeks. Yeah, I'm working tomorrow. <laughs> I, am, I am not working tomorrow because I am tired of working. I have had virtually no childcare for the last three and a half months. I am kind of over it. I am ready to go on vacation. James that said... In two weeks, we are still going to have another Nerd Alert that is going to be a little bit of a different episode, uh, seeing as how I am going to be on vacation. I am not going to bother bringing in Kaylee or Zach or Dave, and we are going to take a deep dive into carbon fiber with an interesting interview I did with someone who maybe you wouldn't expect. So make sure you come back and visit us for that one. So I will be back with you in two weeks. So with that, we will say goodbye. And everyone in the U.S., I hope you had a wonderful holiday. And We'll see you soon. Do we want to do the awkward goodbyes again? 
Bye. Bye. <laughs> such, such an awkward, such awkward, an awkward ending. Goodbye. Yeah. Rome didn't like our awkward goodbyes in last episode, so I think we just have to make them even more awkward. That's a little Do we have to have Do we have do we have to have like a do we have to have like an outro jingle or something? Like Toodles. What do we do here? Hasta mañana. You know, I I thought I thought my ending there was just fine. I mean, Abby's going to have to edit this and she's going to have to figure out how to, you know, she's probably laughing at us right now, I'm sure. sure. Abby cut it Abby cut this wherever you see fit. And then just, we'll, we'll we'll just leave it to you. Uh, we'll leave we'll leave it to Abby. I don't know any other languages. <laughs> yeah. Spain and Spanish. All right. Interesting. Bye everybody. See you all in two weeks. Bye bye. 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 Ciao. Ciao. Prego. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was much better. That's what I had in mind. <laughs>